Inflation hit a new 40-year high last month. Consumer prices jumped 9.1% from a year ago, causing Americans a lot of stress. Is this a good deal? Is this a bad deal? Is this how much it costs now? So now I give my credit card to my husband. I give him a list and I say, don't tell me how much it costs. Just bring everything home. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, a French company has asked the FDA to approve an over-the-counter birth control pill. A new suicide hotline launches this week. It's only three digits, 988. But most states say they can't meet the expected volume of calls. And soccer great Brittany Scurry talks about The Only, a new documentary about her stardom and the devastating concussion that ended her career. The problem was she hit me in the side of my head with her knee and I never saw her coming. And so I was very exposed. Brianna Scurry coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is preparing to resume public hearings next week. The panel on Tuesday established the connection between then-President Donald Trump and the extremist organizations that attacked the Capitol that day. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin is a member of the committee. He says Trump played a significant role in firing up his supporters to storm the Capitol that day. The president was the one who sent out the tweet that electrified and galvanized dangerous extremists in the country. Um, There were all kinds of connections with um, his political associates like Roger Stone, like Michael Flynn, uh, with these groups. Um, And he knew that there were armed people. Lawmakers on the committee say they plan to use a primetime hearing next Thursday to focus on what Trump was doing while the riot was unfolding at the Capitol and why it took him more than three hours to tell the mob to back off. President Biden arrived in Israel today, the first stop of his four-day trip to the Middle East. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Jerusalem. President Biden offered mostly fist bumps to Israeli officials and a long hand squeeze with former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The White House said Biden would avoid most handshakes due to the pandemic. The issue of contact is arising ahead of a meeting with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, whom the U.S. implicated in the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Biden spoke about creating a Palestinian state. Which is why we'll we'll discuss my continued support even though I know it's not in the near term, a two-state solution. That remains, in my view, the best way to ensure the future of equal measure of freedom, prosperity, and democracy for Israelis and Palestinians alike. Biden then viewed a laser system Israel is developing to intercept missiles. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. Inflation continues to rise at its fastest pace in more than 40 years. NPR's David Gura reports consumer prices jumped 9.1 percent in June from a year ago. Prices increased at a faster annual pace than economists expected, and the biggest drivers continued to be food and energy prices. In June, the average price of a gallon of gas hit an all-time high. So-called core PCI, which doesn't include food and energy, was down slightly from what it was in May, year over year. Ahead of the release, President Biden's economic advisors emphasized CPI numbers are backwards looking, noting fuel prices have started to trend lower. But the Federal Reserve is likely to see these data as another indication it should keep hiking interest rates aggressively. It's expected to raise them again by three quarters of a percentage point at its next meeting later this month. David Gura, NPR News, New York. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 208 points. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's choice for the next police commissioner is a 30-year veteran of the department. Michael Cox has served as the Ann Arbor, Michigan police chief for the last three years. When he worked in Boston, he sued the police department after he was viciously beaten by his fellow officers. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has more. Cox rose through the ranks in Boston after he successfully sued the department for the 1995 assault he suffered as a young plainclothes officer. He said he decided to stay in policing after that to make sure what happened to him wouldn't happen to anyone else. I have dedicated my life to making sure that, you know, both the Boston Police Department and, you know, policing in general has grown and learned. Um, from the experiences, you know, uh, least that I went through way back when. Boston has been without a permanent commissioner for more than a year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. The largest Boston police union says it welcomes the selection of Cox to lead the department. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. The president of the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association, Larry Calderon, says the union looks forward to working with Commissioner Cox and hopes Cox will focus on morale and increasing staff. It's one of the main things that we hope to discuss with the commissioner. We hope that he would be an advocate um, with the mayor's office and the city council to, as quickly as possible, hire more police officers. Calderon says the department needs hundreds more officers. He also says Cox understands the city because he worked in the BPD for decades before he left in 2019 to become the chief of police in Ann Arbor, Michigan. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts House lawmakers will consider whether to expand the tax proposal to make one-time rebates available to more people in the state. Last week, House leaders introduced a bill to send eligible taxpayers $250 for individual filers, $500 for couples who filed jointly. To qualify, residents must have earned at least $38,000 last year. Today, State Representative Tammy Govea proposed an amendment to the bill that would drop the income floor so lower-income residents could receive checks as well. The House may take up the amendment this evening. 81 degrees now in the Boston area. Nice afternoon. Partly cloudy overnight tonight. Some showers off and on. Temperatures just about the mid-60s. Then for tomorrow, look for mostly cloudy skies. Chance of showers and thunderstorms. Highs just about 80. 81 degrees now in Boston at 406. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Inflation hit a new four-decade high last month, with consumer prices up 9.1 percent from a year ago. For the typical American family, that meant spending nearly $500 more in June just to maintain the same living standard that they enjoyed last year. As prices climb, so does anxiety for many people. Linda Foster in Tacoma, Washington, says she just has to close her eyes at the grocery store these days. All the spare money is being eaten up by everything else. So like, if the cost keeps going up, our paycheck doesn't necessarily go up $100, $200, $300 a month. For Jay Espy in Potomac, Maryland, high inflation is the difference between feeling comfortable a year ago and feeling the squeeze today. I'm sort of living on the edge here with just monitoring what that's going to look like in the next six months. Let's talk about what's behind these high prices and what can be done about them with NPR's Scott Horsley. Hi, Scott. Hi, Ari. This new inflation report was even worse than expected. What's going on? 
we're still living with this mismatch between really strong consumer demand and limited supply that just can't keep up. Uh, nowhere is that more evident than the gas pump. Gasoline prices hit a record high last month, topping $5 a gallon. And rising energy costs accounted for nearly half the overall inflation between May and June. That's a drag for people like Bethany Chambliss. Uh, she recently took a job working at a hospital in Lexington, Lexington Kentucky uh, that pays pretty well, but unfortunately it's 28 miles from her home in Frankfurt. I've got good gas mileage car and 350 gallon I could handle. But when it shot up to almost $5 a gallon, that raise that I received was completely wiped out. Chandless looked into moving closer to work, but found out that apartment rents in Lexington were out of reach. And while gasoline prices have come down in recent weeks, uh, rising rents are likely to keep the pressure on inflation for months to come. Beyond gas prices, where else are prices climbing? Grocery prices are up more than 12% in the last year. Chicken, eggs, margarine, they've all gone up even more. Economists sometimes strip out food and gasoline prices because they bounce around a lot and focus on what's called core inflation. But that's also uncomfortably high. Uh, People are having to pay a lot more for clothing and medical insurance and new and used cars. Uh, Jay Espy, who we heard from, swapped her big SUV for a more fuel-efficient hybrid, so she is saving some money on gasoline. But now she's got a car note to pay every month, and new car prices are up 12.5% from a year ago. The anxiety level is definitely increased because, you know, I'm thinking, will my income still match the price increase? And if I'm laid off or my position is eliminated, that would send everything into a tailspin. Now, for now, at least, the job market is still really strong. Unemployment's low. Employers added more than 370,000 jobs in June. But when household budgets are being stretched by inflation, that does add to people's economic worries. So what are people doing to cope with these high prices? Wages have also been going up, but they're not keeping pace with inflation. So people are having to dip into savings. Uh, In some cases, they're carrying a bigger balance on their credit cards. Overall, consumer spending has held up pretty well, even in the face of these high prices. But Linda Foster, the mom we heard from in Washington State, says she and her husband are being more careful about what they spend money on. We don't do discretionary fun. We don't go places that we don't have to go. And that's kind of it is when we have spare money, it's like, what, what does the family need? What does the family want right now? And then our interests can just be pushed aside. Of course, you can only cut corners so much when we're talking about rising prices for essentials like food and shelter and electricity. So let's talk about what can be done about it. The Federal Reserve has been trying already to crack down on inflation. What more can they do? The central bank has been aggressively raising interest rates in hopes that will tamp down consumer demand and bring prices under control. The Fed was expected to boost interest rates by another three-quarters of a percent when it meets later this month. But after today's report showing inflation even higher than expected, a lot of observers now think the Fed will go even further and boost interest rates by a full percentage point at the July meeting. That's what Canada's central bank did earlier today. Canada, like a lot of other countries, is also fighting high inflation, although prices are not quite as high north of the border as they are here in the U.S. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. A Paris-based drug company is seeking approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for an over-the-counter birth control pill. If approved, it would be the first oral contraceptive available in the U.S. without a prescription. For more details on this, we're joined now by NPR's Allison Aubrey. Hey, Allison. 
Hey, Elsa, good to be here. Good to have you. Okay, so, I mean, birth control pills have been on the market for, what, 60 years now? They've always required a prescription. Just tell us why that might change now. You know, the argument in favor of over-the-counter birth control is that it would help reduce barriers to contraception access. Survey research has shown that as many as 30% of women of childbearing age report a problem obtaining a birth control prescription or getting refills. The reasons people give vary. Uh, Some report not having a regular doctor, uh, challenges getting an appointment, or just being hesitant to go. Uh, I spoke to Dr. Jenny Villavicencio at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists who says logistics can be an obstacle too. Taking time off work, getting child care, driving, parking, all of those things, then going to the pharmacy to pick up your prescription. It also incurs financial costs, particularly if you are underinsured or uninsured. And so those are just some of the barriers that exist with contraception, which we know is safe. And the science and the data has for a while shown that birth control is very safe to be offered over the counter and doesn't need a prescription. Her group includes about 60,000 obstetrician gynecologists. They've been on the record in support of over-the-counter birth control going back to 2012. And now, given the uncertainty over reproductive rights after the overturning of Roe, there's a heightened sense of urgency also to address these barriers because reliable contraception is so important. So much more important these days. Okay, so, I mean, how new of an idea is this, though, to make the pill available in the U.S. without a prescription? Not really new. I mean, this has been in the works for years. A coalition called Free the Pill, which includes uh, advocates, researchers, healthcare providers, has really been building the case going back to 2004. They've helped to lay the groundwork and kind of build the evidence base to support an FDA application. I spoke to the group's project director, Victoria Nichols, who explains the company that has submitted the application, HRA Pharma, must meet a whole bunch of FDA criteria to get over-the-counter approval. A person has to be able to take the medications as intended without a doctor's um, explanation. That's something that the pharmaceutical company has to prove through their data and their research. We believe that these pills are are safe and effective and that people should be able to follow the simple instructions. You take a birth control pill once every day. Dozens of countries around the globe have over-the-counter birth control, Elsa, including Mm -hmm. Mexico, a bunch of Latin American and European countries. Last year, HRA Pharma, the company seeking FDA approval, got a license to bring a non-prescription contraceptive pill to the UK, too. So what do you think the timing on this will be? Like, when would the FDA decide whether to approve this over-the-counter birth control pill? Well, people watching this closely estimate the process could take about 10 months. The agency could ask a group of advisors to review the evidence. So sometime in 2023, you know, strategically, the company is seeking approval for what's called a mini pill, which does not contain estrogen. And this makes it lower risk since estrogen in the Mm -hmm. pill is linked to blood clot Mm -hmm. risks, which has always been something that doctors screen for when they prescribe the pill. So this progestin only only pill uh, can be slightly less effective, 91% with typical use. But since it does not carry the same risks, doctors tell me it makes sense as a potential first over-the-counter option here. So exciting. That is NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you, Allison. Thank you.
Sri Lanka's prime minister and acting president has told the military to do whatever is necessary to restore order in the country. A state of emergency has been declared and a curfew is in place across the island. After weeks of demonstrations over a bankrupt economy, food and fuel shortages, President Gatabaya Rajapaksa fled the country overnight, hours before he was due to step down. Raksha Kumar reports. One leader gone, another under siege. Crowds stormed the gates of Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe's office Wednesday morning. For now, he's Sri Lanka's acting president. Police fired tear gas as the crowd attempted to push down the gates, eventually succeeding, storming into an empty building. But the chaos was tinged with celebration. After months of protests, President Gotabaya Rajapaksha fled the country overnight taking a military jet to the Maldives with his wife and two bodyguards. He leaves behind a shattered country, bankrupt, starving, angry. Now the protesters are calling for the acting president to go as well. We are waiting for an all-party government to be formed. Professor Sumati Sivamohan has taken part in the protests from the beginning. Our position is that the executive presidency should be abolished. We should have a president who would be beholden, accountable to the parliament. In his first address as acting president, Ranil Vikramasinghe told the country he had instructed the military and police to, quote, do whatever is necessary to restore order, calling some of the protesters a, quote, fascist threat. This is like a Paris Commune, a French Revolution moment. Professor Sivamohan again. We are actually living in the middle of a revolution, but like all revolutions, it can be dangerous. It also can take a very conservative turn. As a military helicopter whirls menacingly over the heads of protesters in the capital, for many, the question now is, how does the country restore calm? For NPR News, I'm Raksha Kumar in Mumbai. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBR's All Things Considered, soccer great Brianna Scurry on her victories and struggles after the U.S. Women's Soccer Historic World Cup win in 1999. Stock slid on Wall Street. The Dow lost 0.67% of its value, that's 209 points, to close at 30,773. S&P fell nearly a half percent to finish the session at 3802. The Nasdaq lost 0.15% to close at 11,200. A metric that measures the health of the economy in the Boston area is showing signs things are slowing down. Only two companies in greater Boston became publicly traded in the last three months. That's down from nine in the same period of last year. And the money raised in the initial public offerings is down 80 percent this year. The figures come from the services firm Ernst & Young. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where specialists in your type of cancer create personalized care plans just for you. Learn more at youhaveus.org. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston, lacuchara.com. 
Sunshine should give way to some clouds tonight. Maybe showers falling to the mid-60s for a low. Tomorrow, the grayest day of the week. Mostly cloudy skies. The chance of showers and thunderstorms a little bit cooler than today's highs. Just about 80 degrees tops. 81 degrees now in Boston at 419. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3 AI is Enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Brianna Scurry is one of the best women's soccer players in the history of her sport. A two-time Olympic gold medalist, a gay black woman who blazed a trail for all those who came after her. Remember the 1999 World Cup? Her saves propelled the U.S. to their win over China. It's the kind of career that Scurry had wanted from as early as eight years old. And then when I was a teenager, I made this little sign and it said, Olympics 1996, I have a dream. And I put that sign on my wall. That childhood dream became a reality in Atlanta. Then 14 years later, she suffered an injury that ended her soccer career and changed her life. When I spoke with her about her new documentary, The Only, we talked about her injury and what's happened since then. But first, Brianna Scurry took us back to that first Olympics and walking through the tunnel for the opening ceremonies. It was astonishing. I mean, I'm sure you've all seen those ceremonies, and it is truly a celebration. And it was just so exhilarating for me to find myself on that team at that time, like I just had basically planned it my whole life. I want to talk a little bit about the 99 World Cup. You had this huge save, and then Brandi Chastain kicked the game-winning goal, and this is how she talked about it. My kick is insignificant if she doesn't make a save. How did you see that moment? Tell us about it. In my process of getting prepared to go through the penalty kick shootout, I completely focused on what it was I was supposed to do, which was save one. And so I really didn't focus anything else on what my teammates were doing because I had complete faith that they were going to be able to do their jobs and they had faith that I would be able to do mine. The other thing that Saskia Weber, another teammate, points out in the documentary is, in her words, she says your save wasn't elevated enough. I'll be blunt about it. Any other white goalkeeper that would have done that, like, would it, it would have been totally different. Do you agree with her? Oh, you know, for the longest time, I didn't want to believe that my skin color or my sexual orientation was ever seen as undesirable or an impediment for me to advance or to get sponsorship or partnerships with companies and corporations. But over time, I realized that that is exactly, unfortunately, what the case was. It saddened me because I was out there you know, performing my best, representing my country, and growing the game with my teammates. And for the longest time, I didn't think it was about my skin color. 
to have been a trailblazer, to be able to get notoriety now in my two stories. I'm very excited for what is coming now and what's to come in the future. We've talked about the highs of your career, and I also want to talk about the lows. In 2010, you were playing in the Women's Professional Soccer League, and in your first start for the Washington Freedom, you sustained a devastating concussion and a collision with an opposing player. How and when did you know that this was not just an injury that could sideline you for a season, but that this was a career-ending moment? If you were to go on YouTube and look up Brianna Scurry head injury 2010, you could see a video of this exact moment. It doesn't look all that horrific. Yeah. But the problem was she hit me in the side of my head with her knee and I never saw her coming. And so I was very exposed. As soon as I stood up, I saw the names and the backs of the jerseys were blurry. And I started to tilt a little bit to the left as I was walking and the ball was fuzzy and blurry and a few minutes went by and halftime whistle blew and I walked off the pitch and my trainer came out to meet me and she asked me, Briar, are you okay? And I said, no. I knew at that moment that this concussion was unlike any of the other ones I had experienced. I didn't realize that it was career ending until a few months later when it just wasn't getting any better. And I realized at that moment that that was the end of my career. How would you describe pre-concussion Brianna and post-concussion Brianna? Ooh. Well, pre-concussion Brianna was very confident, very self-secure, very brave, extremely focused, and had an emotional intelligence and ability to truly focus on what needed to be done. Post-concussion, Brianna spiraled into the depths of suicidal thoughts and anguish and financial ruin. And fortunately for Brianna today, I am more like the pre-concussion Brianna than I ever have been. But it was the post-concussion Brianna that got through that situation that made me stronger. So you have become an advocate for speaking out about concussions in soccer. What is your main message to the leagues about how to do better by their players? Well, one of the most impactful things that the leagues can do right now is something called a head injury assessment. Rugby in Europe has this. It is a independent doctor that takes a player off the pitch into a quiet room for a five to 10 minute assessment and decides whether or not that player can continue. And if I can just ask, what ha- what happens now, though, if th- those kind of independent assessments aren't happening? Unfortunately, what happens now, because these women are, you know, they're, they're passionate about their game. They're playing at a high level. They're playing for high stakes. They want to stay in the game. And even though they may have gotten knocked out for a short period of time in a game, Doctors and coaches ask them for their opinion on a situation that they may not even be aware they had. They're going to say they want to play. And so you have to take that choice out of their hands and protect them in the way in which they deserve to be protected. And you mentioned there's a second thing that you'd like to see the leagues do. What was that? So right now, head injury protection, there are certain inventions 
there's a few players in, in the NWSL wearing the collar and the head injury protection headband, essentially. And I think these things should be mandated. I know right now the league doesn't do that. But I will say this. There was a time when shin guards were voluntary. And now they are mandatory and they have been for decades and nobody thinks twice about it. I think if the leagues would assess the impact of headgear and head injury assessment, I think they would be on the right side of protecting their players and showing that they care about them. Brianna Scurry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Have a wonderful day. And I really appreciate that you are now part of my journey. So thank you for that. Thank you. Brianna Scurry's memoir is called My Greatest Save, and the documentary about her life, The Only, is on Paramount+. And if you or someone you know may be considering suicide, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or contact the Crisis Text Line. Text HELLO to 741-741. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, a beautiful day, partly cloudy, possibly damp overnight tonight, chance of showers and thunderstorms down around 66. Tomorrow should hover about 80 with mainly cloudy skies and showers. Bill Littlefield, longtime host of Only a Game, returns to WBUR City Space Thursday, July 28th to talk with me, but not about sports. We'll speak, he'll speak about his new crime novel, Mercy. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. 81 degrees now in the Boston area. News headlines from NPR are coming up next. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive, directtire.com. And Worcester Cultural Coalition. July 16th and 17th, Old Sturbridge Village hosts a music and art weekend. More at worcesterculture.org. The International AIDS Conference convenes this month in Montreal, but not everyone can go. Why do you even put conferences in such a place where visas are so hard to get? Travel restrictions in prosperous countries can keep delegates from coming. How does that affect global health? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow, starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is now in Israel for the start of a four-day trip to the Middle East where he will hold talks with Israeli, Palestinian, and Saudi Arabian officials. Biden was welcomed at the Tel Aviv airport today where he was briefed on Israel's Iron Dome and Iron Beam air defense systems. He also reiterated U.S. support for keeping Israel safe. With this visit, we're strengthening our connections even further. We have reaffirmed the unshakable commitment of the United States to Israel's security, including partnering with Israel on the most cutting-edge defense systems in the world. 
Biden is spending two days in Jerusalem for talks with Israeli leaders. On Friday, he meets with the Palestinian president in the West Bank, then heads to Saudi Arabia. The White House says Biden is avoiding close contact with people offering fist bumps due to an uptick in coronavirus cases. Labor activity is soaring here in the U.S. New federal data show workers' efforts to unionize this year are already surpassing last year's levels, as we hear from NPR's Alina Selyuk. The National Labor Relations Board is the federal agency that reviews petitions from workers who want to unionize, decides if they show enough support to warrant a union vote, and runs those elections. The board says between October and the end of June, it received 56% more unionization petitions than it did a year earlier, almost 2,000 of them. In fact, by late May, it received more union petitions than in the entire previous fiscal year. The NLRB says in the same time period, it also received more filings accusing employers of unfair labor practices, up by 15% to over 13,000 complaints. Alina Selyuk, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street amid the latest report on surging inflation from June. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of the local law enforcement community are reacting to the appointment today of Michael Cox as Boston's next police commissioner. He's a former Boston police officer who served the department for 30 years. He's currently the police chief in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Interim Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden says Cox's record of service is exemplary and he's grateful to have such a, quote, strong partner in building a safer, more equitable Boston. The Boston Police Patrolman's Union tweeted that Cox has a working understanding of the changes needed to make the police department better, and it is looking forward to working with him. We'll have more on Cox's appointment in just a few minutes. A federal appeals court in Boston is reinstating a a seasonal closure of nearly 1,000 square miles of lobstering grounds off Maine's mid-coast. Federal regulators first imposed the closure last year. The court this week rejected Maine lobstermen's claims that the fishing gear they use is less dangerous to endangered North Atlantic right whales than the government has stated. The legal fight will continue. But in the meantime, traditional lobster trap and pot gear will be barred from the affected area from October through January. A Hingham emergency room doctor is raising concerns about the situation in Ukraine after five months of war with Russia. WBR's Amanda Beeland has more on what the doctor saw while there and what he thinks the country needs most right now. Dr. Frank Duggan says the situation in Ukraine is dire. I think that the Russians are indiscriminately bombing everything. Duggan got back last week from his second trip to the country through his organization, Healthcare Volunteers International. His goal is twofold. First, set up hospitals with telehealthcare so physicians anywhere in the world can virtually assist Ukrainian doctors with patient care. And second, bring much-needed basic supplies to the country. The hospital I was working at for about three weeks They had no running water at the hospital. They were out of suture, out of gauze, out of just basic necessities. Duggan plans to make another trip to Ukraine soon. He's also organizing a shipping container of supplies to head there. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. The forecast still pretty nice out there right now. Partly cloudy, maybe some showers, thunderstorms overnight tonight down around 66. Tomorrow, mainly cloudy skies. Could have some thunderstorms during the day. Highs about 80 degrees. 81 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data Iku a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. 
designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston will soon have a familiar face in the police commissioner's office. After more than one year without a permanent commissioner, Mayor Michelle Wu has chosen Michael Cox to lead the department. Cox spent 30 years working his way up in the ranks in Boston and worked the last three years as the police chief in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're joined by WBUR's Ali Jarmanning, who is covering the announcement and... Uh, Welcome, Allie. And this is kind of a homecoming for Michael Cox as well. What more can you tell us about him? Yeah, so like you said, he's very familiar with Boston. He grew up in Roxbury. The announcement today was actually made right down the street from his childhood home. And he spent three decades with the Boston police. He worked his way up through the ranks and eventually ran the bureau that investigates officers accused of misconduct as part of its duties. But he's probably best known for something that happened early in his career when he was attacked by fellow officers. And this happened when he was in Boston. It's a really disturbing incident. Can you tell us what did happen? Yeah. So in 1995, Cox was working in the plainclothes gang unit. And he responded to a shooting in Roxbury and chased the suspect over a fence. And some officers mistook Cox, who is black, for a suspect and violently beat him. He suffered kidney damage and head injuries. And after the incident became public, he got threats from fellow officers. Cox ended up suing the department, the city, and the officers involved. And the city settled for $1.3 million and He went back to work. He went back to work for the Boston Police Department, working presumably still with some of those same officers who had beaten him. What does he say about the experience now? Yeah, He says he was the victim of unconstitutional policing, just like many black and brown people across the country. But the incident didn't shake his belief in policing as a public service. And so after this incident happened, I had a choice. Either, you know, quit, leave, or stay. You know, and I chose to stay because I believe in policing in in a community-friendly way. And he says he wanted to be there to make sure what happened to him wouldn't happen to anyone else. Tell us about um, the Ann Arbor years. How has he done running the department there? Yeah, so Ann Arbor is very different than Boston. It only has about 150 officers compared to the roughly 1,600 here in Boston. And he's been really well-received there. We spoke to folks in Michigan who were really impressed by his work. So here's Dr. Lisa Jackson. She's the chair of Ann Arbor's Independent Community Police Oversight Commission. And I do think that he um, really tried to push the department to be more transparent. It, it was We definitely had a good working relationship with him. Not to say he did everything we wanted, but that's probably going to be true of anyone, right? <laughs> and Jackson and others are disappointed to see Cox leave so quickly before he could really make long-lasting reforms. There were, though, some uh, areas of controversy in Ann Arbor, correct? Yeah, yeah. Last year, Cox was briefly put on leave after a complaint. The investigator found that some employees feared retaliation from Cox, even if that wasn't his intention. And Cox apologized and says there was a misunderstanding because he came from a bigger department that had a different culture. And Wu says she was aware of what happened and she was assured by Ann 
Harbor officials that it wasn't a significant issue. So speaking of Mayor Wu, uh, what did she say about why she picked Cox? Yeah, so he was one of four finalists presented by the executive search firm and the search committee that Wu formed. And even though Cox worked in Boston for decades, Wu said the two of them had never crossed paths before. But when they finally talked during the interview process, Wu said it was really clear that they had similar priorities and values. And there was just such a sense of hope and excitement and joy about what we could get done together, even tackling um, very complex and quite entrenched systems. Ellie, it's been a long time since Boston's had a permanent leader of the police department. Remind us what happened to the last commissioner. Right. So flashback almost 18 months ago and two mayors ago, Mayor Marty Walsh hastily names Dennis White commissioner after William Gross retired. And then within days, White was put on leave after the Boston Globe reported that he had been accused decades earlier of domestic violence. Then acting mayor Kim Janey fired White. And since then, superintendent in chief Greg Long has been leading the department ever since. And what kind of what kind of reaction are you hearing from folks about Cox's appointment? So it's been generally positive. He's really well liked in Boston and people are hopeful that he'll hit the ground running. So the Reverend Eugene Rivers called Cox the most brilliant choice Wu has made. Uh, Commissioner Cox uh, is an A+. He knows the internal system, but he's not too much of an insider. I also spoke to an 18-year-old from West Roxbury who was at the event. His name is Natrell Allen, and he was there with We Belong. It's a leadership program run by police officers. And he said he likes what he heard from Cox today and what he knows about his background. Because he has, like, the both sides, like, understanding, you know, understanding the community, but also seeing it from a police officer, like, standpoint of how some things have been, you know, kind of off. So I think with having knowledge of both sides is very important because then, you know, you can, it's easier to make a change. And what kind of challenges is Cox likely to face in Boston? We yeah. know there will be many. Yeah, so Boston is a pretty battered department right now. There's an overtime scandal at the evidence warehouse. There are questions about why the department allowed a child rapist to stay on the force for two decades. And Larry Calderon, who leads the union that represents patrol officers, says Cox is going to have his hands full with some immediate problems. That includes low staffing levels and officer morale. Morale is the worst that I've seen it in my 28 years. They feel underappreciated. They have a lack of respect from their elected officials. Not all of them, but a handful in the city council. So there's, there's a big morale problem in the department. And Cox seems to be aware of that morale problem and says he has a message for the department's employees. We're going to support you to death. We're going to make sure that you're developed. We're going to make sure that you have all that you need to do this job. You know, but we're also going to hold you accountable for all the things that we ask you to do. There are also lots of people in Boston waiting to see what Cox does when he takes over as commissioner next month, and they plan to hold him accountable, too. Thank you, WBR's Allie Germanning reporting on the appointment of Michael Cox as the new leader of Boston Police. Thanks, Allie. Thanks, Lisa. Starting this Saturday, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline will change from a 10-digit number to just three digits, 988. Now, this new shorter 988 number will be easier for people to remember and dial in the middle of a crisis. Mental health advocates hope it will ultimately transform the country's mental health care system. NPR health correspondent Ritu Chatterjee is here in the studio to tell us more. Hey, Ritu. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so 988, I mean, it feels Mm -hmm. pretty easy to remember, right? But how do you think it will actually change how people access mental health care? So right now, 
there just aren't many options for people experiencing a mental health crisis. A growing number of people are using the 10-digit suicide prevention lifeline, but the vast majority really just call 911 mm-hmm. and they end up in an ER waiting for hours in these frenetic um, ERs um, and sometimes even days to get care. Or they end up interacting with law enforcement officers, which can end up in tragedy and trauma. Here's psychologist Ben Miller. He's the president of the nonprofit Wellbeing Trust. And if you look at the data from the police, it's about 20 percent of their total staff time is spent responding and transporting individuals who are experiencing a mental health crisis. And just last year, he says more than two million people with serious mental illness ended up in jail, which is, you know, obviously not where they should be. Absolutely. I mean, and then there's the reality that a lot of people struggling with mental illness get killed by law enforcement, right? Absolutely. About a quarter of police shootings involve a person with mental illness. Um, People uh, like Miles Hall, a young man in California who had schizoaffective disorder. His mother, Tan Hall, says Miles was a really gentle guy. He was just a great kid. You know, he'd walk in a room and he'd have this infectious smile and he was just a beautiful soul. But his delusions made him think he was Jesus, so he'd just go around knocking on people's doors, preaching to them. And because the family is African-American, his mom had taken this extra precaution of telling the police beforehand about his diagnosis for Miles' safety. But one day in June 2019, when he was in the midst of a breakdown, the family called 911, hoping they would get him into a hospital. But instead, they got cops. Right when they got on scene, within 30 seconds, they're shouting his name. You don't do that when someone's in a, having delusions and hallucinations. And then within 30 seconds, one of them shot a beanbag. And then within like another second, they were shooting their guns. Miles was shot four times. And Miles died that day. So the goal with 988, Elsa, is that it will be a safer more effective option uh, than 911 because anyone experiencing any kind of mental health crisis can call the number, talk to a professional trained to handle such crises, and that person can also connect the person um, to crisis care that does not involve the police or ERs. Okay, so I call 988, and and, and what kind of care, like what what sort of care would that look like? So things like mobile crisis teams that would come to your house and crisis stabilization units, So I spoke with Angela Kimball, who's with the advocacy group Inseparable, and she has experienced what good crisis care looks like. Her son was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And back in 2017, he was uh, living in Portland, Oregon, uh, when he had a major uh, manic episode. He'd ripped out all the kitchen cabinets. He'd smashed the stove into just nothing. He was talking about how soap was poison and how he felt like he was being surveilled. So Angela reached out to the local crisis center. She knew there was one. And they sent a mobile crisis team to her son's house. They talked very respectfully and kindly to my son. And they just said, hey, Alex, we hear that you haven't been sleeping for a few days. Looks like things aren't going well for you. How are you doing? He says, yeah, I can't go to sleep. You know, my head is hurting and I I just want to fall asleep. And they were so effective, Elsa, that he willingly went with the team to a crisis stabilization unit where he received treatment right away. Wow, that's really good news. 
Well, okay. So starting on Saturday, when 988 goes live, will will people Mm -hmm. anywhere in the country be able to access this kind of care? Depends on where you live. So just in the past year, the federal government has invested historic amounts of money to beef up the 988 infrastructure. But only four states have passed legislation to fund 988 and associated services. And just about half have a plan for when the line goes live. That said, mental health advocates say this new number is still the launch is a historic event. It's just going to take a while to have the system up and fully functional. And remember, until 988 launch on Saturday, anyone in crisis can call 1-800-273-8255. That is NPR's Ritu Chatterjee. Thank you, Ritu. Thank you. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Sunshine from this afternoon should give way to some clouds around tonight, maybe some showers falling to the mid-60s for a low. Tomorrow should be the cloudiest day of the week and the wettest, mostly cloudy skies. Chance of showers and thunderstorms should be a little bit cooler, highs around 80. And for Friday, sunshine's back. Temperatures should hold to about 80. As of now, it's looking like we should have a sunny and hot weekend ahead. The largest and brightest supermoon of the year will rise tonight. A supermoon is a combo when there's a full moon and the orbit brings it closer to the Earth than usual. Our moon will be closer than at any other time this year, this evening, roughly at 222,000 miles away. The moon should rise about 9 p.m., be visible until about 5 a.m. if clouds permit. This is WBUR. 81 degrees now at 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. 1776 at the ART. See the electrifying revival of the Tony-winning Best Musical, Final Weeks, closes July 24th, amrep.org. And Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, kidney disease, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. Boston Bruins have traded away forward Eric Halla. The left winger was shipped to the New Jersey Devils for center Pavel Zaka. Halla spent one season with the Bruins, accumulating 18 goals, 26 assists last year. Zaka's numbers were just a tick below that. His acquisition comes as the Bees also look to re-sign centers Patrice Bergeron and David Krejci. This is WBUR. College is, as we know, a big business, and to pick where they might send those tuition dollars, students and their families rely on the rankings. A student doesn't really know what's in the rankings. They just know the rankings exist. I'm Kai Rizdal, the changing world of college rankings, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Quinta Brunson made Emmy's history yesterday. She's the first black woman to receive three nominations in one year for comedy. Before her sitcom Abbott Elementary came out last year, I interviewed the comedian about her memoir, She Memes Well. And Quinta Brunson told me, growing up the youngest of five kids in Philadelphia with conservative religious parents, she was always told she should pursue a stable career. Becoming a performer, comedian, 
anything other than the teacher really seemed very far-fetched. Um, so I kind of split off into this separate world where secretly I was doing improv classes and I would come home. You literally, <laughs> like you snuck off to Chicago I from did. Philadelphia to take classes at Second City and didn't tell your parents that didn't that's what you were doing. Didn't tell my parents. I like came back home. Mom's like, where were you? I was like, I was doing drugs. <laughs> anything, <laughs> anything was better than, uh, than doing taking, comedy. Taking the improv <laughs> <laughs> so you move to Los Angeles, you get a day job at the Apple store, and you get a chance to do a comedy show where you create a character that now tens of millions of people have seen. This mm -hmm. is the girl who's never been on a nice day. Excuse me, waitress. We y'all get your water. Oh my God, you got money. So you created these YouTube videos with the character and it completely took off and you start getting recognized on the street, even in the Apple store where you're working. What was that yes. moment like for you? Yeah, well, first correction, they were Instagram videos. I never actually was on YouTube. I never actually made a YouTube video. Right. They just got- and it was like the earliest days of Instagram video. Like Absolutely. someone said you were the first viral Instagram video, which I don't Se know if that's Siri. possible to fact check. I don't know if that's said. possible to fact check either, but it has been said because I started using <laughs> Instagram video like as soon as it happened because it wasn't a thing. I don't think we knew mm -hmm. the potential of Instagram at that point. It was just like that was back when Instagram was very pure. Right. Like nobody knew what an influencer was necessarily. Exactly. It wasn't a thing yet. But as far as like getting recognized and stuff, it was surreal, I think, because that, you know, I talk a lot about celebrity and fame in the book and what it is and what it means now but at that time with that kind of notoriety people recognizing me i'm doing air quotes for people who can't um mm -hmm. see this it was like oh is it this easy to be recognizable and i think i was mm. thinking that to myself because i was like that was a fluke that was i didn't do that on purpose and now people are recognizing yeah. me but I don't have any of the things that go with that, like most of the other people. You weren't getting paid for those <laughs> Right, not one thing, not the pay, not the house, <laughs> not the fanciness. So it was odd. So you got a job at BuzzFeed where your job was to make videos that would go viral and you were hugely successful. Like these videos had tens of millions of views. It's also super easy for Bay to kiss you on your forehead. It's right there, even when you're wearing heels. This is a video about advantages of being short, mm -hmm. we should say. <laughs> Shopping's awesome because your size is usually available. But even if it isn't, there's always the kids section. I ain't ashamed. So what do you think you learned from that experience that maybe made you a different kind of comedian from the standard like coming up through the ranks of doing stand-up in small clubs the path that so many people who are in comedy right now have done yeah i think working at buzzfeed video specifically kind of taught me about like the science of relatability hmm. where you know those buzzfeed videos that era that time and those videos all had a there was a format to it. There was an idea behind it that, you know, you're making these videos that someone from here in America can understand, but also someone in Mongolia somewhere can understand huh. because that's how universal the concept is. Yeah. It also just feels kind of like whether a joke lands or not might be subjective, but whether a video gets seen and shared is measurable. Absolutely. Like you can actually put numbers to whether a thing landed or it didn't. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are things that you would do on, on the internet that would not go, that would not get a chuckle in a comedy club or, you know, and, and stand up mm. or as a sketch. 
there, there are tweets that are hilarious and super shared and well shared. But if you said it out loud in real life, it's not as funny. So these are all different stages, really. I consider the internet just another stage and you have to tailor the performance for mm. the stage. Interesting. So you were in the first season of the HBO show, A Black Lady Sketch Show, mm -hmm. which has been nominated for Emmys. Mm -hmm. And let's listen to a clip of one of the sketches from that. <clears throat> Unfortunately, my clients were unable to attend this hearing, but I'm sure they would appreciate it if we took some time to find out how my girl over there got her goddess locked so right. <laughs> See you. I see you. I'm suing your clients, and I. Still this is a courtroom scene. We should explain. <laughs> so, especially after growing up, not necessarily seeing yourself reflected in the comedy that you were watching, just tell us what it was like to be surrounded by other funny people making comedy, all of whom were black women. Yeah, weirdly cathartic in a way I didn't. Ex I didn't expect at all. Um, huh. I don't know. I, it wasn't necessarily a worry of mine until I realized I have been denied it so, so much mm. <laughs> like and and I have my own like collectives and like my own friend groups of black friends who do comedy, but actually like performing and creating a piece of work on the sketch show with other um, black people, black women was like, man, this is a thing that Adam Sandler gets to do all the time. That's crazy. Huh. Huh. <laughs> like, Just be with people who have the same life experience. Yes. And, and, and not have it be a thing. Right. And I was like, that's nuts. Like, I don't <laughs> seriously, because I even think as, yeah. as a woman period, you're probably not getting that experience that often of being with an entire other group of women. But how many like dude movies and shows have there been? Right. Groups of dudes, you, typically white dudes, you know, doing their thing. Hmm. Okay, I have to end by asking about a show you created and star in that is not out yet called Abbott Elementary. Yes. I'm Janine Teagues. I've been teaching second grade here at Abbott Elementary for a year now. The staff and here is incredible. This is a show where you play a second grade teacher. And yeah. because you say in the book, your mother raised you with the expectation that you would become a teacher. I gotta ask how she feels about you finally being a teacher, but maybe not in the way she imagined. Yeah, she was super happy i think it's a way for her to get to live her dream of me being a teacher and especially because the show is a mockumentary style like i think she really gets to feel that so she's very proud but not because i created a show for abc but because i am a teacher <laughs> did you have that in mind at all when you were creating this show were you like oh this is gonna make my mom feel happy um a little bit for sure but ultimately <laughs> i just think that her story as a teacher, which is nothing unique. It's the story of many teachers in America, many public school teachers. I just think it's super special. And uh, she watched the pilot and was just like, you really nailed it. Like you nailed it. And that meant that meant a lot to me. That was Quinta Brunson talking with me last year about her book, She Memes Well. After her three Emmy nominations for Abbott Elementary yesterday, Brunson tweeted, Crying, shaking, and throwing up has new meaning to me because I, real life, did all three. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, Leslie Manville plays a 1950s housekeeper who discovers the dress of her dreams and transforms the house of Dior. 
in theaters Friday. Tickets available now. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, social security, and estate planning. More at fisherinvestments.com. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is 90.9 WBUR, a nice, rather hot day today for the overnight hours tonight. Partly cloudy skies could be on the damp side with some showers, maybe some thunderstorms as well. Temperatures tonight in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, look for lots of clouds around showers and thunderstorms. A little bit cooler, highs right about 80 degrees. And then for Friday, the return of the sunshine, highs only about 80 degrees. A nice sunny weekend coming up, a little, little on the hot side though. It is 79 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, wbur Boston's NPR news station. The January 6th committee will next focus on the actions of former President Donald Trump while the U.S. Capitol was under attack. None of us, including the members of the committee, have seen what Donald Trump was doing during that time. So we want to try to reconstruct what was happening. Committee member Jamie Raskin coming up. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden starts his Middle East visit with a series of deals in Israel. The Catholic Church has long been clear on its anti-abortion stance, so how does the church plan to support pregnant women now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned? And in 1955, accusations made by a white woman led to the brutal murder of black teenager Emmett Till. Relatives of Till are calling for the arrest of that woman who is now elderly. For 67 years, Carolyn Dunham Bryant has been allowed to escape real interrogation, let alone prosecution. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden began his visit to the Middle East in Israel today. It's the first stop on a trip where he hopes to show the U.S. approach to the region is changing, even as he underscored the United States' long-standing commitment to Israel. NPR's Asma Khalid has more. He spoke about the history between the United States and Israel and, in fact, his own history as a politician who has visited this country 10 times in the span of the last 50 years. He also spoke about his desire to deepen Israel's integration into the Middle East. And, you know, while he's here, the president will have a range of meetings with Israeli leaders, Israeli politicians. Uh, He's also planning to visit the West Bank and meet with Palestinian leadership. Biden will also travel to Saudi Arabia, where he'll meet with OPEC leaders. With plans by the House January 6th committee to hold an eighth session next week, the body continues its efforts to tighten the focus on then-President Donald Trump's activities on the day of the Capitol insurrection. 
Testimony at yesterday's hearing focused on, among other things, a meeting described as unhinged, during which some of Trump's advisors reportedly advocated seizing state voting machines. That plan was eventually discarded. There was also an allegation of Trump seeking to contact a potential hearing witness. Next week's hearing will reportedly focus on the 187-minute timeline where Trump remained silent in the White House while the supporters rampaged through the Capitol. A new survey shows an overwhelming majority of Ukrainian refugees are hoping to return home as soon as possible. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports more than 5.5 million Ukrainians fled to other countries to escape the violence there. A survey carried out by the UN High Commission on Refugees found the majority of refugees from Ukraine want to return home as soon as they can. But about two-thirds expect to stay in their current host countries until the fighting subsides and the security situation improves. The UNHCR spoke with 5,000 refugees between mid-May and mid-June, mostly in Eastern Europe, the Czech Republic, Poland, Moldova, Romania, Slovakia, and Hungary. 16% of refugees said they were planning to return to Ukraine in the coming two months. Refugees' plans on whether to stay put or when to move varied significantly according to their regions of origin. A higher proportion of refugees from Kiev and areas in the west were planning to return than those from the east and north where fighting continues to rage. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Kiev. The government's main inflation gauge, the Consumer Price Index, posted its biggest increase in more than four decades last month. The index, which measures the price of a market basket of goods, up 9.1 percent. To find a time when inflationary pressures were as intense as they are right now, you'd have to go back to the early 1980s. With the interest rate setting Federal Reserve trying to push inflation down to its 2 percent target, it's almost a foregone conclusion another big rate hike is in the cards when the body meets later this month. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow dropped 208 points. The Nasdaq was down 17 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Police Department has a new leader. Michael Cox was introduced today as the next commissioner of the department. Mayor Michelle Wu says she has no doubt Cox is the right person for the job. Having grown up here, having served in all of the roles within the department and elsewhere, he is uniquely positioned to build the public safety infrastructure that Boston deserves and continue building on the community trust and community policing that our city has led on for decades. Cox worked in various roles for the Boston Police Department for 30 years before he left in 2019 to become police chief in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He'll officially take over in Boston August 15th. Michael Cox will have to adjust to the fact that Massachusetts has implemented extensive changes to policing since he last worked for the police department here. A member of the state's Police Oversight Commission, Boston Police Officer Larry Ellison, says he thinks Cox will adapt and incorporate those reforms in his policing style. He's a very soft-spoken person, but I think people should not misinterpret that as he's someone that uh, won't get the job done. Cox successfully sued the Boston Police Department in the 1990s for a civil rights violation. He had been assaulted by his fellow officers while he was working in plain clothes. Those officers mistook him for a suspect. Some advocates for police reform in Ann Arbor, Michigan, are disappointed that their police chief is coming back to Boston. WBR Simone Rios reports. Incoming Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox was hired just three years ago in Ann Arbor. Members of that city's Police Oversight Commission, which formed after a police killing in 2014, say Cox is leaving too soon. But he did make some progress, says Francis Todoro Hargreaves, vice chair of the commission. We've gone from not being able to view body camera footage to receiving body camera footage for every officer complaint. We've gone from not being able to see officers' names to reviewing officers' names. 
Some supporters of Cox praised the way he led Ann Arbor police in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. For the first time this year, mosquitoes carrying the West Nile virus have been detected in Massachusetts. State public health officials say the infected uh, mosquitoes were found in Easton on Monday. There have been no human or animal cases of West Nile so far this year. Last year, there were 11 human cases. Most people who are infected have no symptoms, but some can experience fever and flu-like illness. In the forecast, 79 degrees now, partly cloudy skies tonight, damp. Some showers or thunderstorms, about 66. For tomorrow, mainly cloudy skies and showers should hover right around 80 degrees. 79 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. WBUR supporters include USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com delivering. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has now held seven public hearings. Yesterday's hearing took the panel and the public inside the Oval Office as then-President Trump's allies and his legal team battled over the baseless claims of a stolen election. Hours before Trump sent an overnight tweet calling supporters to Washington— Be there, the tweet said, will be wild. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin is a member of the House Committee that's investigating January 6th, and he took a leading role in yesterday's hearing. He joins us now. Welcome, Congressman Raskin. Delighted to be with you guys. Congressman, the testimony we heard yesterday included testimony from Stephen Ayers, who is one of the members of the pro-Trump group that breached the Capitol on January 6th. You know, the president, you know, got everybody riled up told everybody head on down. So we basically were just following what he said. Based on what you have heard, what your committee has learned, do you believe there is enough evidence to confirm that former President Trump was essentially giving his supporters direct orders to march toward and breach the Capitol? I certainly think there's enough evidence for citizens to come to that conclusion. You know, the president was the one who sent out the tweet that electrified and galvanized dangerous extremists in the country. If you're asking me the legal question, do prosecutors have sufficient evidence to bring a case? Do they think they could sustain a proof beyond a reasonable doubt? That's a judgment for the Department of Justice. And I know everybody wants us to answer that question, but I really don't want to step on their toes. I mean, we have a separation of powers and it's not up to Congress to decide that. During one part of the hearing, we saw a sort of video montage of people who were in the room for this, by all accounts, explosive Oval Office meeting on the evening of December 18th. As you build a case for the American people against the former president, what is the significance of what happened in that meeting? Prior to December 18th, every attempt that Donald Trump had made to overthrow Joe Biden's electoral college majority had failed. Now in desperation, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, the overstock guy, all showed up at the White House with a new plan. And now the plan was to get Donald Trump to sign an executive order appointing a new special counsel, Sidney Powell, and seizing the state's election machines across the country. But essentially, this whole maneuver was thwarted by the White House staff. And that was the moment in the middle of the night that Donald Trump decided to summon the crowd. 
And Congressman, I want to ask you about that because we also heard yesterday from an employee of Twitter who talked about the company's response to Trump's use of that platform to rally his base, to call them to Washington in the days leading up to the insurrection at the Capitol. And this was a witness that was anonymous. I'd like to ask you why and if there was anything that this employee said that could precipitate legal action against either Twitter or that employee themselves. Well, this employee was doing everything in his or her power to try to blow the whistle about this deluge of pro-violent tweets. And the employee was terrified about what they saw coming. And yet the Twitter employee testified that they were ignored and that there was no effort to try to either rein in these tweets or to alert various police authorities about the scale and the magnitude of the emergency that the employee saw coming. Let's talk about that next hearing. It will be the committee's eighth. It will be during prime time. And as members of the committee have told us, it will be focused on what the former president did and did not do on January 6th as the Capitol was under attack. What more could we learn? So we're trying to tell the human and social and political and moral meaning of having a violent insurrection and an attempted coup in America. But the truth is, None of us, including the members of the committee, have seen what Donald Trump was doing during that time. So we didn't see his actions. We didn't see his inactions. So we want to try to reconstruct what was happening and why did it seem to be such a delayed and lethargic response to this military and national security and political emergency in the heart of the nation's capital. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, thank you so much for being here. The pleasure is all mine. It was a day of mourning in Akron, Ohio, as Jalen Walker was laid to rest. He's the 25-year-old black man who was fatally shot by police last month. Police say eight officers shot Walker following a car and foot chase after he was pulled over for a traffic violation. Police contend Walker fired a shot during the car chase, but he was unarmed when he was killed. There were at least 60 gunshot wounds on his body. Anna Huntsman of Member Station Idea Public Media joins us from downtown Akron. Hi there. Hi there. Give us a sense of what the mood was like today after days of new protests and new information about the shooting coming out. Right. It was a little bit quieter today. In fact, the city designated today a day of mourning, and the family had actually asked for a pause in protest today. But it was still very spirited. The services were held at this big historic theater downtown. Dozens of people came by throughout the day to pay their respects. I'd say about several hundred were there for the funeral. Walker and his family were deeply involved in their church, so there were prayers, scripture readings, and worship music during the service. But at the same time, there were these poignant calls for justice and police accountability. And what role did Walker's family play? Well, two of his family members and his best friend spoke during the service, and they described him as soft-spoken, but a funny, kind person. He loved wrestling and other sports. His cousin, Robin Ellerick, said the few weeks before he passed were a very hard time for him. His fiance was recently killed in a tragic car accident, and Ellerick said she had texted and talked with her cousin a lot during this time. There were a lot of I love yous back and forth. One thing I want us all to take 
from this is that God does not waste moments. And it's so important to share the moments with the people that you love as often and as much as we can with each other. And what about the broader community? Right, like I said, dozens of people came to this theater, but cars and trucks passing by would blast their horns in solidarity. I spoke with Akron resident Latoya Smith, and she told me her niece went to school with Walker, and they were close friends. She said Walker was actually her great niece's godfather, and he was always holding her because she loved him so much. He was a really nice person, like just always smiling, talking to everybody around. And this community has really come together following Walker's death. I mean, there are so many people who came to the funeral today or who have been protesting since the shooting that didn't know him personally. But this tragic way he died has really struck a chord with everyone. And so what's likely to happen next? Well, after the funeral, Walker's family and their legal team held a news conference, and they actually announced that international investigators from the United Nations have offered to look into the Walker shooting and police risk protests. State investigators are looking at the shooting, and the family continues to urge the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate as well. Anna Huntsman of IdeaStream Public Media, thank you. Thank you. President Biden began his Middle East trip in Israel today. He and Israeli leaders are meeting on some contentious issues while also trying to remind the world of their close ties. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Jerusalem. President Biden gave Israeli leaders at the airport COVID-safe fist bumps. Israeli President Isaac Herzog was just as chummy. Welcome to Israel, our brother Joseph. A new Israeli leadership and a new U.S. president both want to make a good impression. The connection between the Israeli people and the American people is bone deep. It's bone deep. Former President Trump and former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu deepened a partisan rift in both countries over Trump's hard-right policies on Israel. Still, Netanyahu was at the airport and Biden greeted him warmly. One announcement today was a deal to work together on artificial intelligence and climate technology. But Biden had some words on ending Israel's occupation of Palestinians and creating a Palestinian state next to Israel. We'll discuss my continued support, even though I know it's not in the near term, a two-state solution. That remains, in my view, the best way to ensure the future of equal measure of freedom, prosperity, and democracy for Israelis and Palestinians alike. Another issue is the U.S. conclusion that an Israeli soldier likely was the one who killed Palestinian-American journalist Shirin Abu Akleh in the occupied West Bank three months ago. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told her family by phone today he's committed to accountability. And National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters Biden would discuss it on this visit. There will have to be uh, efforts made at accountability and, and, and making sure that um, we find a way uh, to conclude this chapter justly. Biden ended the day at a ceremony at Israel's Holocaust Memorial. He met with elderly Holocaust survivors and signed the guest book, saying it was, quote, a great honor to be back in my emotional home. Tomorrow, Israel and the U.S. will release a blueprint for their relationship in the years to come. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. Hey, if you're outside tonight and the weather is clear, look up. 
tonight is the full buck moon. It is the biggest super moon of the year. That means the moon's going to be closer to Earth than any other full moon this year. So soak it up, and if you want to howl, I won't tell. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. No howls from me. <laughs> this is All Things Considered on WBUR. Catholic Church after the overturning of Roe versus Wade. That story still to come on WBUR. Stocks slid today on Wall Street. The Dow lost 0.67% of its value. That's 209 points to close at 30,773. S&P fell nearly a half percent to finish the session at 3802. The Nasdaq lost 0.15% to close at 11,248. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. We should have partly cloudy skies tonight, a big, bright supermoon, as you heard. There is the chance of showers, though, tonight down around the mid-60s. Then for tomorrow, we could wake up to showers, then a partly sunny day, only making it to about the low 80s tomorrow. And then mostly sunny skies for Friday, up around 81 degrees. Should be warmer, though, over the weekend. 79 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The Catholic Church has long been clear on its anti-abortion stance. But now in this post-Roe landscape, how does the church plan to support pregnant people and parents who would otherwise have sought an abortion but now can't? To learn more about that, we're going to talk now with two people who are already doing this kind of work. Mike Phelan, director of the Office of Marriage and Respect Life with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Phoenix, and Sister Bethany Madonna of the Sisters of Life, a group that provides counseling and resources to pregnant people. Sister Bethany told me many of these people come to her under difficult circumstances and, in some cases, have already scheduled an appointment for an abortion but they reach out to us with this little glimmer of hope, tell me that there is another option or another way. So what are the conversations like? They're miraculous because we've had women get off the table. We've had women at the abortion clinic door turn around. We've had women who uh, have no faith at all 
for the first time in their life, say a little prayer that God would do something if he exists. And then beyond influencing their decision on whether to go through with an abortion, what further support do you provide? We have coworkers of life who are men and women who have come forward to say, we'll do anything to support the women that you serve. And we watch them <laughs> open their homes, get apartments, scholarships, jobs, clothing, resources of all kinds. We basically see uh, all of their needs met. God has a lot of money and he <laughs> sends people who uh, want to be very generous with these women. Um, and then we try to be the bridge. Mike, I know that you have said after the Dobbs decision had been leaked earlier this year that the Catholic Church stands, quote, ready to help women who need help. So let me ask you, does the church have an actual plan to ramp up its support now that many more women, many more people may not have access to abortion? Yes. And so I've been very grateful to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, particularly Archbishop Lori and Archbishop Nauman, for launching Walking with Moms in Need in anticipation of the shakiness of Roe about two years ahead of time, the church here in the United States decided to focus again on making the parish, so that every local church, a center of accompaniment, a lot like what Sister Bethany is talking about, this readiness to receive and to help and to honor a woman who comes forward looking for assistance and that training has been happening now for two years, and the church is beginning to really get this in place. It's been challenging with the whole virus situation right, right. in many ways. But can you put that in but concrete terms? What kind sure. of assistance? So, good question. Members of the parish called companions or angels come alongside two by two, a woman, to help her get to her appointments, to help her to receive all the prenatal care that she needs. Mm -hmm. uh, any other additional medical care that she needs, any rent assistance. In the short term, the goal is to be available for as long as the woman needs and wants the help. Are there enough resources for that presence to be available throughout the child's life, the child who comes into the world because an abortion was not available or the person decided not to go forward with an abortion? Are those resources indefinitely available? Well, I think... They are generously available, and obviously there is a tremendous need, which is going to require of us in the church to step up in a deeper and a new way, in a very deeply personal way, rather than simply referring to organizations, which are wonderful and generous, but often not enough. I'm pushing both of you on this question of what resources, what kind of support is out there long term, because as we know, raising a child takes more than seeing a pregnancy through to yeah. term. And I, I, I want to just point out, you know, a 2020 report from the United Nations Children's Fund, this is UNICEF, found that the U.S. ranks near the bottom of dozens of wealthy nations in terms of child well-being. The U.S. also has a higher child mortality rate than its peers. And it's frankly the only rich country with no guaranteed federal paid family leave. Do you know, is the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops prepared to push lawmakers and others to provide more resources to families, to children who are born because abortion was not an available option. Yes. Currently, we're grateful that abortions have suspended in Arizona. This means, though, that we've got about a thousand women a month who are in a situation where they've got to be able to find help quickly and then be supported through that. Which is a daunting task. Very daunting. 
But I'm also happy to report <laughs> that the Arizona. It is exciting. But as Sister Bethany mentioned, you know, God's not short of cash and the resources are there. And in fact, the Arizona legislature passed a couple of measures to provide for foster care help in the form of stipends to those that take on foster children, as well as um, other additional help for prenatal care and for organizations that provide housing. Sister Bethany, is your organization in a position now? Does it have enough resources now to support people who no longer have abortion as an option to support them, not only to see the pregnancy to term, but to support the parenting of the child, the raising of the child for maybe the child's entire life. You know, we had served a woman who had twins and just got them both scholarships to school. So I do have to say that we have to recognize that it takes nine months for a child to come to term. So there's time. It's doesn't, we don't have to have every resource for 18 years in one place at one time. That's the miracle of it. It's it's letting others step forward to provide. In addition to whatever resources the church can provide, what do you think the federal government and state and local governments need to provide? I would say safe, affordable housing. That is like the dream that so many of these women come with, a place to call home, you know, and a place that is mine and a place that I can prepare to raise this child where they're, they're safe and can receive their child. Mm-hmm. Mike, you had said after the Dobbs decision was leaked that not having any abortion in this country would, quote, be the ideal, because you say that abortion is equivalent to the killing of a human person who is innocent. So I'm wondering, at this moment, do you feel the work is not yet done, as long as there are some states in this country where the right to abortion remains? Sure. Well, you, you um, adequately defined abortion there. Well, I'm using your words. Well, it's the intentional ending of a life that is in a very vulnerable and small stage. And we were all in that stage at one point. At one, at one point, each of us listening here and talking was the size of something we call an embryo or a fetus. And we survived that time. Somebody was generous enough to help us. And that's the ideal, is a society that says that is what we're all about. No human person is beneath our concern. And that's the goal. So absolutely, we want to make abortion not just illegal, but unthinkable and recognize each human person, each little person, each elderly person as the real gift and image of God that they are. Mike Phelan is director of the Office of Marriage and Respect Life with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Phoenix. And Sister Bethany Madonna is with the Sisters of Life. Thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Elsa. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, inflation and retirees. More workers retired during the COVID-19 pandemic than expected. But with rising inflation, a plunging stock market and a hot housing market, some are wondering if they left their jobs too soon. That story is coming up. And on Marketplace tonight, college rankings have always been important to the application process, both of the college and the prospective student. But could that tide be turning? To take all of the colleges and universities in this incredibly diverse landscape and put a single straitjacket template on them strikes me as insanity. 
How valuable are college rankings? That's tonight on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. We should have a partly cloudy night tonight. A big, bright supermoon tonight should be closer than at any other time this year, only about 222,000 miles away. May have to duck a few showers while you're moon gazing tonight. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Then tomorrow, showers early, a mixture of clouds and sunshine. Highs in the low 80s. This is WBUR. It's 5.30. You know, the truth is that, you know, if the Democrats don't solve these problems sooner than later and don't devise a message that will let them talk to a broader proportion of the electorate, there's no reason to assume that they'll come up with it later. You know, it's not like the problem is they have some solution to their problem and they're not using it. Their problem is they don't really have a solution even. I'm Estet Herndon, in for Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Stocks ended lower again on Wall Street today after a highly anticipated report on inflation turned out to be worse than analysts expected. The consumer price index for the 12 months ending in June soared to 9.1 percent, another four-decade record, as NPR's Scott Horsley tells us. It's really broad-based. Grocery prices are up more than 12 percent in the last year. Restaurant prices are up nearly 8 percent. Uh, prices continue to climb for new and used cars. Another big expense is shelter. You know, rents have been jumping at double-digit rates yeah. in some communities. And, and Masterson certainly noticed that in her Utah neighborhood. We have these apartments behind our house that uh, someone just bought and flipped over the last year. But it's, it's really been shocking to the whole neighborhood, like how much they've raised the prices. Meanwhile, the Biden administration and some economists believe that inflation peaked in June as evidence they cite a decline in gasoline prices so far in July and falling commodities such as wheat, copper and corn. Michigan's governor released an executive order today declining to help with extradition for abortion-related charges. From Michigan Public Radio, Colin Jackson reports. The order is Governor Gretchen Whitmer's latest effort to protect abortion access after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a right to the procedure in its Dobbs ruling last month. University of Michigan law professor Richard Primus says it appears to avoid conflict with the U.S. Constitution, which requires extradition for people who flee a state after being charged. We're in a new legal landscape since the Dobbs decision. And one of the things that happens in new legal landscapes is that lawmakers innovate. The governor's order lists an exception for people who left a state after charges came down. For NPR News, I'm Colin Jackson. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's choice for the next police commissioner is a Roxbury native and 30-year veteran of the Boston Police Department. Michael Cox has served as the Ann Arbor, Michigan police chief for the last three years. When he worked in Boston, he sued the police department after he was viciously beaten by his fellow officers when they mistook him for a suspect. WBUR's Ali Germanning has more. Cox rose through the ranks in Boston after he successfully sued the department for the 1995 assault he suffered as a young plainclothes officer. He said he decided to stay in policing after that to make sure what happened to him wouldn't happen to anyone else. I have dedicated my life to making sure that, you know, both the Boston Police Department and, you know, policing in general has grown and learned. Um, from the experiences, you know, uh, least that I went through way back when. 
Boston has been without a permanent commissioner for more than a year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Boston's largest police union says it welcomes the choice of Michael Cox to lead the department. Boston Police Patrolmen's Association President Larry Calderon says the union has high expectations for the new commissioner and looks forward to working with him. He has the experience. He, he was a member of the BPD for years. Uh, he rose up to superintendent. He understands the challenges that I think he's going to face coming back here from a staffing and a unification standpoint. But he definitely understands what community policing is because he's a member of it. Calderon hopes Cox will focus on improving morale and hiring more officers. A member of the search committee that named Cox as a finalist for the job is praising his appointment. Abregal Forrester says Cox has the advantage of both working within the department for 30 years Years, then going to Ann Arbor to be police chief there. Being able to understand the dynamics of what exists in the Boston Police Department, but also bring some new approaches to some of the work as well because of his external exposure. And so um, that's what stood out to me the most. Cox will start next month. The state's first chair of the Health Policy Commission Board of Commissioners has resigned effective today. Stuart Altman was named by Governor Deval Patrick to lead the board in 2012. The Health Policy Commission is an independent state agency charged with monitoring growth in health care spending. In a statement, Altman says he believes the work he accomplished has set the right path for the state to balance the financial needs of health care systems with necessary constraints on spending. Deborah DeVoe will take over as chair. She is the former executive vice president at Beth Israel Health and former senior vice president at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. In the forecast, some clouds around tonight, periods of showers and thunderstorms down around 66. Tomorrow should hover around the low 80s, morning showers, then sunshine mixing it up with clouds. Bright sunshine Friday holding to about 81 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft. At home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The lynching of Emmett Till in 1955 inspired civil rights protests across the country. The pretext for his notorious murder was that the 14-year-old made improper advances toward a white woman in the Jim Crow South. That woman later admitted he never touched her. We now know that police issued an arrest warrant for her role in the kidnapping, but never arrested her. Well, that warrant from 1955 was recently found in a Mississippi courthouse basement. And relatives of Emmett Till are calling for police to serve the warrant and charge Carolyn Bryant Dunham with a crime. Jeribu Hill represents the family of Emmett Till. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you, Ari. Will you begin by explaining how this document, 67 years after it was first issued, what was unearthed? Yes, uh, a team of five people, including family members, went to the basement. The access was given by the circuit clerk, Elmas Stockstill, allowed us to have access to the courthouse where the documents were found. Uh, we considered it to be somewhat miraculous since all of the officials 
had been telling us that uh, if there was a warrant, they didn't know of its present existence. It was just found in a box in the basement. I mean, it's a box in a basement labeled 1955. Hmm. And what was so interesting is that everything was found at the same time, the warrant, the affidavit of arrest, and also the uh, capius was found as well. So all of the documents that you would need in order to have served this woman in 1955 were present and available in that box. Carolyn Bryant Dunham is close to 90 years old now. Do you factor her age in at all when you consider what the family wants to see happen next? Okay, I do not. I'm very respectful of the fact that people can live longer and have. But no, I don't factor it in because Emmett Till is laying in his grave at 14 years old. Mamie Till died before she got a chance to see justice for his lynching. For 67 years, Carolyn Dunham Bryant has been allowed to escape even real interrogation, let alone prosecution. And so what would you like to see happen? What would the family like to see right now? We want to see that warrant served on Carolyn Bryant. We also want her culpability to be the subject of an actual grand jury hearing. And we believe through addressing her culpability that at the very least, there will be a full-fledged investigation. What we hope is that there will be a trial where she is charged with a kidnapping that led to murder. This is your hope. Have you had conversations with prosecutors? What are U.S. attorneys telling you? Well, we've had conversations with the district attorney in the 4th District. He is solidly of the opinion that there is no new evidence. There is no cause to explore these questions and these demands that we're raising. The Department of Justice, as you know, closed the case once again on December 6th of this past year, citing that there was no new information, no new evidence. And so if the district attorney is not eager to prosecute and the Justice Department says the case is closed, are you at a legal dead end here? Uh, No, we don't believe so. We believe that because there are laws on the books that speak to expiration of a warrant and the warrant does not expire, we believe that it is necessary to get before the proper judicial body. And so because of that, we're going to press forward. We are not going to stop until we force the issue of accountability. Accountability can take many forms. Why is it important to you to see a criminal trial and a conviction? It's important for us to see that because what we're seeing here is a longstanding double standard rooted in white supremacy and the white woman pedestal theory. And now in the 21st century, we're challenging law enforcement and elected officials in particular to do their duties, to see that justice is done, and to strip away the final remnants of the double standard that still prevails to this day. Jaribu Hill is an attorney for the family of Emmett Till. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you. Video game consoles have come a long way since Atari. But you know, sometimes it's just hard to beat the classics, right? The Super Nintendo Entertainment System hit the U.S. in 1991, just a couple years after the competing Sega Genesis console launched. When you decide to get serious, there's only one place to come, the games of Super Nintendo. Now, the Super Nintendo was wildly popular, with over 700 games released for the system in the U.S. And Carrie Hayes, a.k.a. Peebs on Twitch, has been working on beating every single one. We had wondered 
some of these games, had anyone ever even beaten them before? They were so weird and obscure or difficult. So he turned to the manuals. Uh, for those who were not playing a ton of video games in the 90s, almost all of them came with a manual inside the case that had lots of helpful information. If you wanted the story, you would get that in the manual in the first couple pages. And if you were really lucky, you get a little bit of like a walkthrough that would tell you like the first 10% of the game. Now, modern games typically have an intro cutscene and a tutorial within the first hour of the game. But older games didn't have the time or the space to include those, hence the manuals. Nowadays, though, a vintage game complete with a paper manual can be hard to come by. Which is why Hayes collected copies of every single Super Nintendo manual in the English language. The collection is hosted on archive.org, and it's completely free. Because preservation to me is everybody has access to this stuff when they want it and where they want it. Luke Plunkett covers gaming for Kotaku. He wrote about Hayes' mission to collect every manual back in October 2020, and again when every English language manual was finally archived this July. You know, it was almost like, wow, I can't believe nobody's done this before. It's, it's so important. Plunkett says it was the crowdsourcing aspect of Hayes' project that caught his eye. The goodwill aspect's what really sort of drew me to the story in the first place. Sorry, I was distracted looking at the manual for The Legend of Zelda. <laughs> Hayes told us he started his collection with around 650 scans and then turned to the internet to see what strangers could offer. There can be a ton more people who are like, oh, hey, I've got an old Super Nintendo manual lying around, or, oh, I've got some old Super Nintendo games at my parents' house. I'll go and see if any of the games that they need are there. And Hayes is not done yet. Everybody keeps asking me, like, hey, are you going to do this system? And, hey, are you going to do that system? And I'm like, no, I think we're going to do all systems, because why not? Fatality. The myth of Sisyphus comes to mind, just pushing that boulder up the hill. It's a fun boulder, though. Like, it's a fun boulder, and you meet all sorts of, like, interesting people all over the world. That's Carrie Hayes, a.k.a. Peeps. You can find him streaming Super Nintendo games and the link to the manual archive on Twitch. Meanwhile, I'm going to try to finally win Super Mario Brothers. I had no idea you were such a video game nerd, Ari. Well, long ago. <laughs> Support for All Tech Considered comes from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll, designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. With inflation at a 40-year high and the worst stock market in decades, many Americans are anxious. And for older adults living on fixed incomes, the astronomical rise in prices has delayed some retirement plans and prompted some retirees to go back to work. Kathy Carter from member station WUSF in Tampa introduces us to one of them. A little over a year ago, Dave Hayde spent most days tending to his plants and visiting neighbors. He lives in a close-knit 55-plus mobile home community in Bradenton, Florida. But these days, he's up most mornings at 6 to get ready for work. Well, we get breakfast ready here. Oh, Mountain Dew. <laughs> After a jolt of caffeine, Hayde pops open a can of tuna for his admittedly spoiled cat, 
buddy. Usually when she hears that, she comes running. I break it up for her because it's what I do. <laughs> Early morning wake-up calls were certainly not part of Hayde's retirement plans. The 64-year-old opted into Social Security in November of 2020, but says it wasn't long before skyrocketing prices forced him to pivot. I, mean, I didn't want to dip into my 401s just to pay bills. So about Christmas, it's like, well, after the first of the year, I better go out and scare up a part-time job. And he did, assembling small parts for a hydraulics company. And hate is not alone. Jeff Johnson, the state director of AARP Florida, says inflation has many seniors rethinking whether they left their jobs and salaries too soon. What we've called the great resignation was in many respects the great retirement. And now as costs have gone up, they look at the money that they had saved and realize that they're not sure they can keep up. And I recall back at the recession, 2008, 2009, we saw much of the same. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, grocery prices have risen just about 12% since this time last year. A year and a half ago, I wouldn't have thought about buying baked beans and stuff. Now it's like, well, it's cheap. It fills the empty spot up. I can get two meals out of a can. And electricity is up nearly 14%. That's why Hay doesn't run his air conditioning unit until after he gets home from work. Where'd my kitty at? You gotta turn this air conditioner on. Phew, man. Hade says if he runs the AC a lot, his electric bill more than doubles. And he's also had to spend money updating his typical Florida retiree wardrobe. I had to get long pants for work. I didn't have any. So I went over to the outlet mall and I stocked up on that stuff. A recent study from Nationwide Retirement Institute shows more than one in 10 people near retirement age have already postponed or are considering postponing plans to retire. But if there is any good news, it's this. There are a lot of job openings. Jeff Johnson with AARP says with employers hungry to hire, it's easier for older Americans to find work. There's certainly some pretty attractive opportunities to come back in as workers are offering higher pay in many areas and more flexibility, which is also something that is pretty important to this generation. And he says seniors could see returning to work as a short-term solution until prices stabilize. Until that time comes, Hayde says he'll keep on working. And that's not all bad, because he likes his co-workers. The two people that I work with couldn't ask for two better. It worked out really good. And he says sitting at home all day was actually a little bit boring. For NPR News, I'm Kathy Carter in Bradenton, Florida. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, two scientists in Brazil aim to end Moderna and Pfizer's lock on mRNA technology by patenting their own COVID vaccine to share with the world. The mRNA competition from Brazil coming up on WBUR. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR, or if you have a smart speaker, ask it to play WBUR. Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays are back at Tropicana Field tonight for Game 3 of 4. Josh Winkowski he will pitch for Boston. Shane McClanahan takes the mound for the Rays' 7-10 start time. And the Bruins have traded forward Eric Halla. The left winger was shipped to the New Jersey Devils for center Pavel Zaka. Halla spent one season with the Bruins. He accumulated 18 goals and 26 assists last year. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. The International AIDS Conference convenes this month in Montreal, but not everyone can go. Why do you even put conferences in such a place where visas are so hard to get? Travel restrictions in prosperous countries can keep delegates from coming. How does that affect global health? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow, starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Until now, Pfizer and Moderna have had a lock on the most cutting-edge vaccines against the coronavirus, the ones using mRNA, and they've refused to share what they know. But in Brazil, two scientists have formed a remarkable partnership to challenge that. NPR's Nurit Eisenman traveled to their facility in Rio de Janeiro. This is our office. The two researchers leading this effort are Patricia Neves and Ana Paula Anobom. They work out of a room just big enough for their two desks pushed together. At first, they worried they wouldn't get much done. No. <laughs> because they'd have too much fun. She's my best friend. <laughs> That's Anobom. Ever since she and Nevis met in college more than 20 years ago, they've been inseparable, shopping, lunching, and most of all, just talking. This is Nevis. About anything, science, kids, husbands. But it's largely because of their friendship that this project came about. After college, Neves went on to become an immunologist. All my background was in vaccines. And back in October of 2020, when it became clear that the mRNA vaccines that Moderna and Pfizer were developing against COVID were probably going to work, Neves got an idea. For the last several years, she'd been trying to develop a vaccine-like treatment for breast cancer that used a similar type of mRNA technology. So she thought, what if her team's technology could also be used in a COVID vaccine? I started saying, let's do COVID, let's do COVID. We need to prove that our RNA works. But to get mRNA into the human body, you need to encapsulate it in a tiny fat particle using complex methods that only a few scientists in the world have figured out. Nevis's solution? Call up her bestie, Ana Paula Anobom. After college, she had gone on to become a biochemist. Anobom's reply is a classic saying in Rio de Janeiro. Bora, vambora. <laughs> it means, let's go. <laughs> let's go. Because possibly the most important quality these two friends share is a willingness to go for goals even scientists at their own institute consider far-fetched. Yeah, we, we are innovative and, I don't know, Maybe crazy. <laughs> Setting out to invent their own mRNA vaccine against COVID was a whole new level of crazy. Moderna and Pfizer didn't just have a huge head start. They're private U.S. and European companies with hundreds of millions of dollars in funding. So far, Neves and Anobom have spent about $1 million. Their entire budget is $15 million. The research and manufacturing institute they work at, it's called the Bio Manguinas Fia Cruz Foundation, is a public entity in Brazil. But Neva says this also comes with an advantage. It's not for profit. We are not interested in money to provide vaccines to whom most need. It's the main driver for us. So if the team succeeds in making this new mRNA vaccine, 
they'll do something Moderna and Pfizer have balked at. We are interested in opening this technology. Share the patent and the manufacturing process with vaccine makers around the world. They want this coronavirus vaccine and any future vaccines for other diseases using their mRNA technology to be made as quickly and as widely available as possible to low and middle income countries. Countries that are normally at the back of the line when it comes to getting cutting edge vaccines. Nevis says the unequal rollout of vaccines during the pandemic made her determined to end that. To see people uh, dying because of disease that already have vaccine. It's just not acceptable. That focus also means that Neves and Anabom are prioritizing an approach that's particularly well-suited to countries with limited resources. To explain, Neves takes me into one of her labs. Yeah, this is the microbiology part. Where a team member is using a pipette to drop liquid ingredients into a tiny test tube including the genetic material of some proteins found on the coronavirus. We will put two microliters, okay, here in this tube. It's pretty moving to look at it. Mm-hmm. Neva says the process creates mRNA that works very similarly to the ones in the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, but with an extra feature. This mRNA is what's called self-amplifying. You have some messages inside the mRNA that make this RNA replicate itself. You only need to put a little bit in the body, and the body takes care of making the rest. Among the benefits for lower and middle-income countries... It's cheaper to produce because the doses is lower. Ah, like uh, the, literally the raw material yes, is less. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Next stop on the tour. So this is your lab. The facility where Anabom has already come up with several methods for delivering the mRNA into the body, but where the obstacles she's facing are also on display, at a workstation where a team member is using a syringe to push liquid through a tiny metal sieve. It's not so easy. <laughs> By hand, over and over again. Yeah, there's a machine for that. The machine? How long will it take? Really? Do you want to know? Uh, I think, yeah, two minutes. Anabom bought the machine from an American supplier four months ago, and she's still waiting for it to reach her lab. I think bureaucracy is the, the reason. Brazil's regulatory agencies aren't really set up to approve imports of equipment and supplies for fast-track vaccine invention. Still, Neves says the team did get a major boost last September when the World Health Organization made it a centerpiece of a new global initiative to figure out how to make mRNA vaccines and then set up hubs to teach that knowledge. When WHO gives you like a sign that you are very good, yes, the seal of approval, it brings the project to another level inside our institution. So for all the delays, the team is on track to have the vaccine ready for release and manufacturing at scale within about a year and a half. Now, there are some researchers in other countries who are also trying to develop mRNA vaccines against COVID, including a team in South Africa that's trying to essentially copy Moderna's version, then make the recipe completely public. But if Nevis and Anna Baum succeed, theirs will be the first wholly original new mRNA vaccine that is meant to be shared with the world. Okay, just waiting people to enter the, the meeting. 
Back in their shared office, the pressures of their timeline are palpable as Nevis starts up a video conference with specialists on quality control. We are trying to see if we could go fast with the studies. While Anobom gets started on another urgent task. Uh, presentation for tomorrow. Yes, and I, I should prepare one too. Nevis and Anobom like to joke that as it became clear this project was turning into something really big, their husbands got excited. They started to say, ah, oh, now you're going to uh, receive money, more money. Until they answered, no, no, we are not receiving any more money for this. We are just receiving more work. <laughs> but adds Anabom, they wouldn't have it any other way. Our motivation, she says, is our sense of justice. Narit Eisenman, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Focus Features with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Leslie Manville plays a 1950s housekeeper who discovers the dress of her dreams and transforms the house of Dior. In theaters Friday. Tickets available now. And from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The largest and brightest supermoon of the year will rise tonight. Supermoon is a combo when there's a full moon and the orbit brings it closer to the Earth than usual. Our moon will be closer than at any other time this year, this evening at roughly 222,000 miles away. The moon should rise at 9 p.m., be visible until 5 a.m., if the clouds permit. Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays head into Game 3 of their four-game series tonight, with the Rays having taken the first two games. Tonight, the Sox will tap Josh Winkowski against the Rays' Shane McClanahan. This is WBUR 79 degrees now at 559. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Boston's newly named police commissioner says officers will have his support and high expectations. We're going to make sure that you have all that you need to do this job. You know, but we're also going to hold you accountable for all the things that we ask you to do. Michael Cox has served the department for decades and has been a high-profile victim of it. This is All Things Considered. That story coming up on Lisa Mullins. Also, inflation hit a new 40-year high last month. For many Americans, the rising cost of fuel and food is an increasing source of stress. Is this a good deal? Is this a bad deal? Is this how much it costs now? So now I give my credit card to my husband. I give him a list and I say, don't tell me how much it costs. Just bring everything home. The effect of 9% inflation coming up. Also, a Paris-based company has asked the FDA to approve an over-the-counter birth control pill. It's 6.01 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is preparing for additional testimony next week. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the panel is expected to zero in on what was taking place inside the West Wing as the riot was unfolding at the Capitol that day. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin says the panel will use a primetime hearing next Thursday to focus on why it took then-President Donald Trump more than three hours to tell the mob to stand down. We want to try to reconstruct what was happening and why did it seem to be such a delayed and lethargic response to this military and national security emergency. It wasn't until hours later that Trump released a video telling his supporters that he loved them and to go home. A former member of the extremist group, the Oath Keepers, testified on Tuesday that they went to the Capitol that day because they believed that's what Trump had asked them to do. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Services today for Jalen Walker. Walker, the 25-year-old black man shot and killed by Akron police during a traffic stop. That is that city's mayor declared today an official day of mourning for Walker, who was shot as many as 60 times by police. Bishop Timothy Clark of the First Church of God in Columbus spoke at the service. We cannot make the deaths of our sons and daughters at such an early age the normal thing. There is nothing normal about this. The unidentified officers involved in Walker's death are on administrative leave. While Walker was unarmed at the time of his death as he fled on foot, a gun was found in his vehicle. Chalk it up to continued global instability due in part to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but also to a weakening global economy in general. The euro hovering at close parity with the U.S. dollar, falling to its lowest level in some 20 years. In part, Russia in restricting the flow of natural gas is being blamed. New data out today shows consumer prices surged in June. NPR's David Gurr reports it's the fastest pace in more than four decades. Prices increased by 9.1 percent from a year ago, according to new data from the Labor Department. That's more than economists expected, and the biggest drivers were food and energy. In June, the average price of a gallon of regular gas hit an all-time high. In a statement, President Biden said the consumer price index is unacceptably high, but he argued it's out of date. Gas prices have come down, and oil has been trading below $100 a barrel. But Wall Street believes the CPI report will motivate the Federal Reserve to continue moving aggressively to fight high inflation. It's expected to raise interest rates by another three-quarters of a percentage point at its next meeting at the end of the month. David Gura, NPR News, New York. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. Newly released surveillance video shows the gunman who, armed with an AR-15-style assault weapon, entered a school building in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 children were shot and killed, along with two adults. That same video also showing police officers in body armor milling in the hallway outside the classrooms, where the gunman unleashed more than 100 rounds. Video released by the Austin American Statesman shows parts of the nearly 80 minutes that passed before the gunman initially entered that school and when he was finally shot and killed. In Portugal, thousands of firefighters have been battling blazes across the country. Allison Roberts reports from Lisbon record high temperatures are driving the fires. Hundreds of residents fled their homes in the forested interior of central Portugal, where temperatures reached 113 degrees and fires burned out of control in several places. Down south in the Algarve, a popular region for tourists, several properties at an upmarket golf resort were evacuated as thick smoke swirled overhead and aircraft dumped water on the flames. 
plains. Several localities recorded all-time high temperatures today, but tomorrow is expected to be still hotter for most of the country. For NPR News, I'm Alison Roberts in Lisbon. The U.S. Air Force apparently carried out a successful test of a hypersonic missile this week. That's according to Reuters, reporting sources familiar with the effort, who say the test of the missile built by Lockheed Martin comes amid escalating concerns. Russia and China have been successful in developing their own weapons. Hypersonic weapons travel in the Earth's upper atmosphere at speeds of around 3,800 miles an hour. On Wall Street today, the Dow fell 208 points. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. And I'm Lisa Mullins. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she has wanted the city's next police commissioner to be someone who understands the consequences of inequity and injustice. Today, she named Michael Cox to that position. Cox is a Roxbury native who worked for decades with Boston. In 1995, he was working undercover for the Boston Police Department when he was beaten by fellow officers who mistook him for a suspect. He says after that incident, he had to decide whether to quit the force. I chose to stay because I believe in policing in a community-friendly way. And I know the men and women that I work with believe in that same thing, too. And the reality is me leaving was not going to help. Cox ended up working for the Boston Police Department for 30 years before he left in 2019 and becomes a police chief in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He starts his new job in Boston August 15th. The city has had an interim commissioner since early last year. The previous commissioner, Dennis White, was fired over domestic violence allegations. The largest Boston police union says it welcomes the selection of Michael Cox to lead the department. WBR's Deborah Becker has more. The president of the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association, Larry Calderon, says the union looks forward to working with Commissioner Cox and hopes Cox will focus on morale and increasing staff. It's one of the main things that we hope to discuss with the commissioner. We hope that he would be an advocate um, with the mayor's office and the city council to, as quickly as possible, hire more police officers. Calderon says the department needs hundreds more officers. He also says Cox understands the city because he worked in the BPD for decades before he left in 2019 to become the chief of police in Ann Arbor, Michigan. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. A Hingham emergency room doctor is raising concerns about the situation in Ukraine after five months of the country's war with Russia. WBR's Amanda Beeland has more on what the doctor saw while he was there and what he thinks Ukraine needs most right now. Dr. Frank Duggan says the situation in Ukraine is dire. I think that the Russians are indiscriminately bombing everything. Duggan got back last week from his second trip to the country through his organization, Healthcare Volunteers International. His goal is twofold. First, set up hospitals with telehealthcare so physicians anywhere in the world can virtually assist Ukrainian doctors with patient care. And second, bring much-needed basic supplies to the country. The hospital I was working at for about three weeks They had no running water at the hospital. They were out of suture, out of gauze, out of just basic necessities. Duggan plans to make another trip to Ukraine soon. He's also organizing a shipping container of supplies to head there. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. Some clouds around tonight, periods of showers and thunderstorms down around 66. Tomorrow should hover around the low 80s. Morning showers, then some sunshine mixing up with clouds. Bright sunshine on Friday, still holding to about 81 degrees. And that's where it is right now in Boston, 81 degrees at 609. WBUR supporters include ProQuest, whose website, Black Freedom Struggle in the U.S., curates 2,000 documents related to the fight for civil and human rights. 
Open to all at ProQuest.com slash go slash Black Freedom. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Inflation hit a new four-decade high last month, with consumer prices up 9.1 percent from a year ago. For the typical American family, that meant spending nearly $500 more in June just to maintain the same living standard that they enjoyed last year. As prices climb, so does anxiety for many people. Linda Foster in Tacoma, Washington, says she just has to close her eyes at the grocery store these days all the spare money is being eaten up by everything else. So like, if the cost keeps going up, our paycheck doesn't necessarily go up $100, $200, $300 a month. For Jay Espy in Potomac, Maryland, high inflation is the difference between feeling comfortable a year ago and feeling the squeeze today. I'm sort of living on the edge here with just monitoring what that's going to look like in the next six months. Let's talk about what's behind these high prices and what can be done about them with NPR's Scott Horsley. Hi, Scott. Hi, Ari. This new inflation report was even worse than expected. What's going on? We're still living with this mismatch between really strong consumer demand and limited supply that just can't keep up. Uh, Nowhere is that more evident than the gas pump. Gasoline prices hit a record high last month, topping $5 a gallon. And rising energy costs accounted for nearly half the overall inflation between May and June. That's a drag for people like Bethany Chambliss. Uh, She recently took a job working at a hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, that pays pretty well, but unfortunately it's 28 miles from her home in Frankfurt. I've got good gas mileage car and 350 gallon I can handle. But when it shot up to almost $5 a gallon, that raise that I received was completely wiped out. Chandless looked into moving closer to work, but found out that apartment rents in Lexington were out of reach. And while gasoline prices have come down in recent weeks, uh, rising rents are likely to keep the pressure on inflation for months to come. Beyond gas prices, where else are prices climbing? Grocery prices are up more than 12 percent in the last year. Chicken, eggs, margarine, they've all gone up even more. Economists sometimes strip out food and gasoline prices because they bounce around a lot and focus on what's called core inflation. But that's also uncomfortably high. Uh, People are having to pay a lot more for clothing and medical insurance and new and used cars. Uh, Jay Espy, who we heard from, swapped her big SUV for a more fuel-efficient hybrid, so she is saving some money on gasoline. But now she's got a car note to pay every month, and new car prices are up 12.5% from a year ago. The anxiety level is definitely increased because, you know, I'm thinking, will my income still match the price increase? And if I'm laid off or my position is eliminated, that would send everything into a tailspin. Now, for now, at least, the job market is still really strong. Unemployment's low. Employers added more than 370,000 jobs in June. But when household budgets are being stretched by inflation, that does add to people's economic worries. So what are people doing to cope with these high prices? Wages have also been going up, but they're not keeping pace with inflation. So people are having to dip into savings. Uh, In some cases, they're carrying a bigger balance on their credit cards. Overall, consumer spending has held up pretty well, even in the face of these high prices. But Linda Foster, the mom we heard from in Washington State, says she and her husband are being more careful about what they spend money on. We don't do discretionary fun. We don't go places that we don't have to go. And that's kind of it is when we have spare money, it's like, what, what does the family need? What does the family want right now? And then our interests can just be pushed aside. 
Of course, you can only cut corners so much when we're talking about rising prices for essentials like food and shelter and electricity. So let's talk about what can be done about it. The Federal Reserve has been trying already to crack down on inflation. What more can they do? The central bank has been aggressively raising interest rates in hopes that will tamp down consumer demand and bring prices under control. The Fed was expected to boost interest rates by another three-quarters of a percent when it meets later this month. But after today's report showing inflation even higher than expected, a lot of observers now think the Fed will go even further and boost interest rates by a full percentage point at the July meeting. That's what Canada's central bank did earlier today. Canada, like a lot of other countries, is also fighting high inflation, although prices are not quite as high north of the border as they are here in the U.S. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. A Paris-based drug company is seeking approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for an over-the-counter birth control pill. If approved, it would be the first oral contraceptive available in the U.S. without a prescription. For more details on this, we're joined now by NPR's Allison Aubrey. Hey, Allison. Hey, Elsa. Good to be here. Good to have you. Okay, so, I mean, birth control pills have been on the market for, what, 60 years now? They've always required a prescription. Just tell us why that might change now. You know, the argument in favor of over-the-counter birth control is that it would help reduce barriers to contraception access. Survey research has shown that as many as 30% of women of childbearing age report a problem obtaining a birth control prescription or getting refills. The reasons people give vary. Some report not having a regular doctor, uh, challenges getting an appointment, or just being hesitant to go. Uh, I spoke to Dr. Jenny Villavicencio at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists who says logistics can be an obstacle too. Taking time off work, getting child care, driving, parking, all of those things, then going to the pharmacy to pick up your prescription. It also incurs financial costs, particularly if you are underinsured or uninsured. And so those are just some of the barriers that exist with contraception, which we know is safe. And the science and the data has for a while shown that birth control is very safe to be offered over the counter and doesn't need a prescription. Her group includes about 60,000 obstetrician gynecologists. They've been on the record in support of over-the-counter birth control going back to 2012. And now, given the uncertainty over reproductive rights after the overturning of Roe, there's a heightened sense of urgency also to address these barriers because reliable contraception is so important. So much more important these days. Okay, so, I mean, how new of an idea is this, though, to make the pill available in the U.S. without a prescription? Not really new. I mean, this has been in the works for years. A coalition called Free the Pill, which includes uh, advocates, researchers, healthcare providers, has really been building the case going back to 2004. They've helped to lay the groundwork and kind of build the evidence base to support an FDA application. I spoke to the group's project director, Victoria Nichols, who explains the company that has submitted the application, HRA Pharma, must meet a whole bunch of FDA criteria to get over-the-counter approval. A person has to be able to take the medications as intended without a doctor's um, explanation. That's something that the pharmaceutical company has to prove through their data and their research. We believe that these pills are are safe and effective and that people should be able to follow the simple instructions. You take a birth control pill once every day. Dozens of countries around the globe have over-the-counter birth control, Elsa, including Mm -hmm. Mexico, a bunch of Latin American and European countries. Last year, HRA Pharma, the company seeking FDA approval, got a license to bring a non-prescription contraceptive pill to the UK, too. So 
What do you think the timing on this will be? Like, when would the FDA decide whether to approve this over-the-counter birth, birth control pill? Well, people watching this closely estimate the process could take about 10 months. The agency could ask a group of advisors to review the evidence. So sometime in 2023, you know, strategically, the company is seeking approval for what's called a mini pill, which does not contain estrogen. And this makes it lower risk since estrogen in the Mm. pill is linked to blood clot Mm -hmm. risks, which has always been something that doctors screen for when they prescribe the pill. So this progestin only only pill uh, can be slightly less effective, 91% with typical use. But since it does not carry the same risks, doctors tell me it makes sense as a potential first over-the-counter option here. So exciting. That is NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. Sri Lanka's prime minister and acting president has told the military to do whatever is necessary to restore order in the country. A state of emergency has been declared and a curfew is in place across the island. After weeks of demonstrations over a bankrupt economy, food and fuel shortages, President Gautabaya Rajapaksa fled the country overnight, hours before he was due to step down. Raksha Kumar reports. One leader gone, another under siege. Crowds stormed the gates of Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe's office Wednesday morning. For now, he's Sri Lanka's acting president. Police fired tear gas as the crowd attempted to push down the gates, eventually succeeding, storming into an empty building. But the chaos was tinged with celebration. After months of protests, President Gotabaya Rajapaksha fled the country overnight taking a military jet to the Maldives with his wife and two bodyguards. He leaves behind a shattered country, bankrupt, starving, angry. Now the protesters are calling for the acting president to go as well. We are waiting for an all-party government to be formed. Professor Sumati Sivamohan has taken part in the protests from the beginning. Our position is that the executive presidency should be abolished. We should have a president who would be beholden, accountable to the parliament. In his first address as acting president, Ranil Vikramasinghe told the country he had instructed the military and police to, quote, do whatever is necessary to restore order, calling some of the protesters a, quote, fascist threat. This is like a Paris Commune, a French Revolution moment. Professor Sivamohan again. We are actually living in the middle of a revolution, but like all revolutions, can be dangerous. It also can take a very conservative turn. As a military helicopter whirls menacingly over the heads of protesters in the capital, for many, the question now is, how does the country restore calm? For NPR News, I'm Raksha Kumar in Mumbai. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a Roxbury native will become the next police commissioner in Boston. Michael Cox is a man who knows the city well and knows the troubled record of the department. He was a victim of police abuse. 
Our story is coming up. On Wall Street, stocks slid today. The Dow lost 0.67% of its value. That's 209 points to close at 30,773. S&P fell nearly a half percent to finish the session at 3,802. The Nasdaq lost 0.15% to close at 11,248. All the day's business news coming up in just about 10 minutes on Marketplace. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. And Boston Lights. Enjoy an evening lantern experience at Franklin Park Zoo with displays of hundreds of lanterns. Advanced tickets required at franklinparkzoo.org. Coming to City Space this Saturday, July 16th, The Crossword Show, a live comedy event hosted by actor, TV writer, and comedian Zach Sherwin. Tickets are available at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, down around the mid-60s. Tomorrow we should wake up to showers, then a partly sunny day, only making it to the low 80s. Friday, mostly sunny, highs about 81 degrees. Should be a bit warmer, though, over the weekend. 81 degrees now in the Boston area at 622. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston will soon have a familiar face in the police commissioner's office. After more than one year without a permanent commissioner, Mayor Michelle Wu has chosen Michael Cox to lead the department. Cox spent 30 years working his way up in the ranks in Boston and worked the last three years as the police chief in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're joined by WBUR's Ali Jarmanning, who is covering the announcement. Welcome, Ali. And this is kind of a homecoming for Michael Cox as well. What more can you tell us about? Yeah, so like you said, he's very familiar with Boston. He grew up in Roxbury. The announcement today was actually made right down the street from his childhood home. And he spent three decades with the Boston police. He worked his way up through the ranks and eventually ran the bureau that investigates officers accused of misconduct as part of its duties. But he's probably best known for something that happened early in his career when he was attacked by fellow officers. And this happened when he was in Boston. That's a really disturbing incident. Can you tell us what did happen? Yeah. So in 1995, Cox was working in the plainclothes gang unit. And he responded to a shooting in Roxbury and chased a suspect over a fence. And some officers mistook Cox, who is black, for a suspect and violently beat him. He suffered kidney damage and head injuries. And after the incident became public, he got threats from fellow officers. Cox ended up suing the department, the city, and the officers involved. And the city settled for $1.3 million and He went back to work. He went back to work for the Boston Police Department, working presumably still with some of those same officers who had beaten him. What does he say about the experience now? Yeah, He says he was the victim of unconstitutional policing, just like many black and brown people across the country. But the incident didn't shake his belief in policing as a public service. And so after this incident happened, I had a choice. Either, you know, quit, leave, or stay. You know, and I chose to stay because I believe in policing in in a community-friendly way. 
And he says he wanted to be there to make sure what happened to him wouldn't happen to anyone else. Tell us about um, the Ann Arbor years. How has he done running the department there? Yeah, so Ann Arbor is very different than Boston. It only has about 150 officers compared to the roughly 1,600 here in Boston. And he's been really well received there. We spoke to folks in Michigan who were really impressed by his work. So here's Dr. Lisa Jackson. She's the chair of Ann Arbor's Independent Community Police Oversight Commission. And I do think that he um, really tried to push the department to be more transparent. It, it was We definitely had a good working relationship with him. Not to say he did everything we wanted, but that's probably going to be true of anyone, right? <laughs> and Jackson and others are disappointed to see Cox leave so quickly before he could really make long-lasting reforms. There were, though, some uh, areas of controversy in Ann Arbor, correct? Yeah. In 2020, Cox was briefly put on leave after a complaint. The investigator found some employees feared retaliation from Cox, even if that wasn't his intention. Cox apologized and says there was a misunderstanding because he came from a bigger department with a different culture. Wu says she was aware of what happened and she was assured by Ann Arbor officials that it wasn't a significant issue. So speaking of Mayor Wu, uh, what did she say about why she picked Cox? Yeah, so he was one of four finalists presented by the executive search firm and the search committee that Wu formed. And even though Cox worked in Boston for decades, Wu said the two of them had never crossed paths before. But when they finally talked during the interview process, Wu said it was really clear that they had similar priorities and values. And there was just such a sense of hope and excitement and joy about what we could get done together, even tackling um, very complex and quite entrenched systems. Ellie, it's been a long time since Boston's had a permanent leader of the police department. Remind us what happened to the last commissioner. Right. So flashback almost 18 months ago and two mayors ago, Mayor Marty Walsh hastily names Dennis White commissioner after William Gross retired. And then within days, White was put on leave after the Boston Globe reported that he had been accused decades earlier of domestic violence. Then acting mayor Kim Janey fired White. And since then, superintendent in chief Greg Long has been leading the department ever since. What kind of reaction are you hearing from folks about Cox's appointment? So it's been generally positive. He's really well liked in Boston, and people are hopeful that he'll hit the ground running. So the Reverend Eugene Rivers called Cox the most brilliant choice Wu has made. Uh, Commissioner Cox uh, is an A+. He knows the internal system, but he's not too much of an insider. I also spoke to an 18-year-old from West Roxbury who was at the event. His name is Natrell Allen, and he was there with We Belong. It's a leadership program run by police officers. And he said he likes what he heard from Cox today and what he knows about his background. Because he has like the both sides, like understanding, you know, understanding the community, but also seeing it from a police officer like standpoint of how some things have been, you know, kind of off. So I think with having knowledge of both sides is very important because then, you know, you can, it's easier to make a change. And what kind of challenges is Cox likely to face in Boston? We yeah. know there will be many. Yeah. So Boston is a pretty battered department right now. There's an overtime scandal at the evidence warehouse. There are questions about why the department allowed a child rapist to stay on the force for two decades. And Larry Calderon, who leads the union that represents patrol officers, says Cox is going to have his hands full with some immediate problems. That includes low staffing levels and officer morale. Morale is the worst that I've seen it in my 28 years. They feel underappreciated. They have a lack of respect from their elected officials. Not all of them, but a handful in the city council. So there's, there's a big morale problem in the department. 
And Cox seems to be aware of that morale problem and says he has a message for the department's employees. We're going to support you to death. We're going to make sure that you're developed. We're going to make sure that you have all that you need to do this job. You know, but we're also going to hold you accountable for all the things that we ask you to do. There are also lots of people in Boston waiting to see what Cox does when he takes over as commissioner next month, and they plan to hold him accountable, too. Thank you. WBR's Allie Germanning reporting on the appointment of Michael Cox as the new leader of Boston Police. Thanks, Allie. Thanks, Lisa. This is 90.9 WBUR. Chance of showers overnight tonight. Still moonlit skies tonight down around the mid-60s. Tomorrow we could wake up to showers, then a partly sunny day, only making it to the low 80s. For Friday, mainly sunny skies up around 81 degrees. Should be warmer over the weekend. 81 degrees right now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Farmers Markets. From fish markets and brew pubs to farmers markets and local restaurants, There are countless ways to eat like a local when you're traveling around Massachusetts. Learn more at eatlikealocalinma.org. Funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism. And William James College, the Master of Arts in Psychology program. Earn your degree entirely online. Apply now for fall. Scholarships available, williamjames.edu.